This reading is from Galatians, chapter 2, verse 11, and you can read it on page 185 in the Pew Bible. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you... Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by doing the works of the law. But if, in our efforts to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But, if I build up again, the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Judy. Do you have a seat? And can I encourage you this morning? Even if, it's, if you don't normally, if you can grab hold of the Bible uh, that's somewhere on your pew, if, if you're a kind of person who has a Bible on your phone, you have my permission to get your phone out and look it up. If you're not the sort of person who has a Bible on your phone, but you have a phone anyway, you have my permission to get your phone out and look it up. There's two reasons I would really love you to have this passage open in front of you this morning. One is, it is such a rich passage that I'm not going to have time this morning to, to look at all of it. In fact, I want us to focus very strongly on one particular verse, and we'll look at some other bits in passing. But I also really want us to be so sure from this morning that the Bible says what it does. And I would love you to have that experience of having seen those words there in front of you this morning. And so as we begin, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is true and powerful. We pray that in our weakness you would speak to us with your power this morning and that you would set us free. And we pray that in Jesus' powerful name. 
Amen. I want you to imagine that you are in church. So far, for most of you, that's going to be fairly easy. Apologies for those of you who are watching on the live stream. Hopefully you can manage that bit of imagination. Uh, Imagine that the preacher gets up. Again, easy so far. And then I want you to imagine that they preach a sermon that goes something like this. God is good. God cares about right and wrong. God has given us clear laws to obey. He's told us to love him. He's told us to love our neighbour. He's told us not to commit murder or adultery or steal or lie or envy. And he's told us to honour him. So what could possibly be clearer? We have to try as hard as we can to keep his laws. We should be people who don't lie. We should be people who don't do wrong sexually. We should be people who honour God, who are kind to one another. We should be people who take our religion and our faith seriously, who make it a priority to get to church, who make time to pray, and who are eager to read our Bibles. And if we do these things, if we persevere in this way, if we live this kind of life, if we live the best life for God that we can, then God will accept us. So I say to you this morning, go for it. Go out and live the kind of life that God has commanded us to live, to the glory of God. And if you stick with it, then have confidence that he will accept you and save you. That's the mini-sermon this morning. And I wonder how you would rate that sermon and a preacher who preached it. I know you don't actually rate preachers, at least not to our face, but just pretend this morning that you would ever do such a thing. I wonder if they said that, would you, would you be excited? Would you say amen or do the very Anglican equivalent, which is to go, hmm. Would you invite back somebody who preached like that? Or would you stand up and oppose them to their face? I won't ask you to vote, but I want you to notice two really key things about that mini-sermon that I just preached. The first thing is this. 95% of it is absolutely true. 95% of that sermon is solid biblical truth. That's the first thing. Here is the second thing. That sermon denies the gospel. That sermon is not a Christian sermon. I'll go further. That sermon is an anti-Christian sermon. And I'm saying that as starkly as I can because I think it's very easy not to realise that. I find myself talking to so many people who are confused about what the Christian gospel is and what it isn't. And sometimes I have those conversations inside a church. You know, people say things like, you know, I just hope when my time comes, God will see I've done my bit. Things like, you know, she's such a lovely person, there's no doubt she's going to the right place, God will look after her. Or, 
calls himself a Christian, but he smokes like a chimney. Or perhaps most tragically of all, you know, I do try my best, but I just don't know if it's enough. I just don't know if it's enough for God. I hope so. I hope he'll see I've lived a good life, but I, I just, you, just, you never know, do you? None of those is a Christian way to think. Lots of them are kind and gentle and humble ways to think. I do understand that, but they are not Christian ways to think. But I think we slip into thinking that so easily. And so, if you'll forgive me, in the middle of this amazing, powerful passage, I want us to focus really on one verse, one key truth. And so, have that Bible open in front of you, in the pew, on the phone, because it's so important that we've seen this is not what Gareth says, but this is what the Bible says. Have a look at verse 16. We know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then at the end of that verse, no one will be justified by the works of the law. Do you see how that is the exact opposite of what that mini-sermon said? And if you can't see the difference, then, then you won't get the heart of what the Christian faith is about. And I, and I make no apology for the fact, I'm sure a lot, many of you are sitting there thinking, well, I know this. But in practice, we so often let it slip. See, the, the mini-sermon told us that God is good, and that is absolutely true. It told us that God cares about how we live and has given us clear laws to obey, and that is true. That mini-sermon by that imaginary preacher told us we should try as hard as we can to keep God's laws and to live by them so that we love others and love and honour God in all that we do. And that is all true. Can I encourage you to love others, to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? And then the sermon went on and said, if we do that, if we live that way, to the best of our abilities, God will accept and save us. And that is a lie. That's where the mini-sermon goes wrong. Do you see what the Bible says in verse 16? No one, no one will be justified by works of the law. And works of the law means precisely what my imaginary preacher relied on, obeying the laws of God, living a good life, a kind life, a loving and a generous life. That is works of the law. And again, that's a good way to live. It's a Bible way to live. It's the way we are commanded to live. But the Bible also says that no one will be justified by their efforts to live a good life. No one will be justified by the works of the law. No one in history is going to be declared right by God because of the things they have done. No one is going to be saved on the day of judgment because they led a good life. No one will be acceptable to God on the basis of the good things they have done. No one is justified by the works of the law. Which hopefully means we are asking, so how on earth can we be justified? How can we be made right with God? How does God accept us if it's not on the basis of what we've done? Come back to that verse again, verse 16. 
A person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. See, the question is not do you behave, but do you believe? Not have you done enough, but do you trust that Jesus has done enough for you? Why does that make any difference? Well, again, think of that mini-sermon at the start and all the things that it said that are true, that God is good, that he cares about how we live, that he's given us good rules and he expects us to follow them. All of that is true. The problem is, I promise you, you have not followed his rules. And neither have I. I'm sure sometimes you have. I know sometimes you have, but you haven't done it all the time. And you haven't done it fully and you haven't done it perfectly. And I say that confidently, not because I know you, but because nobody ever has. We've fallen short. If you've ever sat an exam, you know what a pass mark is. It's the score you need in order to pass, to make the grade, to satisfy your examiner, in that rather old-fashioned phrase. And when I used to teach at at university, I remember, it's amazing the things that you remember. I was trying to remember what the pass mark was. And I think simply to pass, you had to get 40%. If you got more than 60%, you got a 2-1. And if you got more than 70%, you got a first. So what do you think the pass mark is for God and God's law? Is it, is it 60%? Is he looking for 2-1 territory? Is it just the special few, the 70%? Well, this is God. Maybe we'll raise it a bit. Maybe it's 90%, 95, 99. No. The pass mark for God's law is 100%. If you want to be justified by the works of the law, you have to do everything right all the time. And not just your outward actions, but your words and your thoughts and your motives, waking and sleeping from the womb to the tomb every single second. And not one of us has done that. None of us has can. None of us can. Which means that none of us will be justified by works of the law. But there is one person who has met the pass mark, just one. And that person is Jesus Christ. He did do everything right all the time, from the womb to the tomb, in thought, word and deed. And so what I need and what you need is his performance in place of my own, in place of your own. I need his track record instead of mine. And that is what faith gives us. Faith unites us with Jesus Christ. If we put our faith in him, everything he achieved is credited to our account. His performance becomes our performance. His death on the cross becomes the death that we owe God for failing to keep his law. And so the price of my sin, the price of my failure to keep God's law, that price is paid. Not by me, but by God himself in the person of his son. So when you ask the question, can God accept me? The answer doesn't come from looking at your life. It doesn't come from looking at anything you have done. It comes from looking at Jesus Christ. At his perfect life and his death in your place on the cross. It also means that when you look at anybody else, 
and you ask, can God accept them? The answer doesn't come from looking at their life. It doesn't come from looking at their clothes. It doesn't come from looking at how well they understand the Church of England or the Baptist Church or whichever church it might be. It doesn't come from looking at how often their name appears on a rota or how often they are late for church. It doesn't come from looking at how well their children behave. It doesn't come from any of those things. It comes from looking at whether they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And that is all. When I look at my neighbours and my friends and my family and I think about their future, I'm not thinking, have they lived a good enough life? I'm thinking, have they put their faith in Jesus Christ? Why do we do our evangelism courses? Why do we run outreach events? Why do we long that people would come and join our church family? It's not so that we can up our giving. It's not so that we can keep the rotors filled. It's because nobody is going to be justified by works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. And we want that for those we love. Now I know for many of us, all that I've said is things that you know already. And you've treasured this for a long time. But as I said, I think it's something we can forget in practice. And I'm confident we say that because Peter managed it. Peter forgot this in practice. Uh, The last passage we looked at in Galatians, Peter and Paul and all the apostles had agreed on the gospel. That was the big point, that there was one gospel from all the apostles. It was a matter of faith and not of keeping the Jewish law, for example, by being circumcised. But when Peter came down to Antioch, uh, we're told that some men came down from Jerusalem and they wanted to start bringing in the Jewish rules about separation from Gentiles. And Peter was frightened of them. They looked perhaps more religious than he did and he was worried that he wouldn't quite be keeping the rules enough and so quietly he withdrew from eating with the Gentiles. And because he did it, others followed him, even Barnabas, who was Paul's right-hand man. You see, Peter knows the gospel in theory, but his life and his practice were denying it. The way he treated others was not in step with the gospel. And so Paul stood up to him. He says he was condemned himself. He said to Peter, you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile. So why are you trying to make Gentiles live like a Jew? Peter, you and I know we were made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. So why are you making your fellow Christians live as though they have to get right with God by their actions? You can't carry that burden. Why are you expecting that they will? And I wonder what he would say to us would he say you know you're made right with God by faith in Jesus so why are you judging other people on how well they behave why are you judging them on how Anglican they are or how not Anglican they are why are you judging them on how middle class they are on the clothes they wear to church why are you judging them on their accent or their education or their giving? Why are you judging them on what their life has been like so far? Or on the things that they are struggling with? You know, St. Lawrence Church, you know that no one will be justified by works of the law. 
So surely you're not going to act as if your respectable friends and neighbours need Jesus less than the ones with the troubled lives. You know, St. Lawrence Church, that you are justified by faith in Jesus. So why do you lose sleep over those sins you confessed and were forgiven for so long ago? You know you are justified by faith in Jesus. So why are you worried that you haven't done enough? Do you see how this one central truth is at the heart of the gospel? Do you see how it touches the whole of life, the whole of Christian life? And we are so prone to leave it behind. To start with grace and think we have to carry on by doing things, to sort of top it up. To exchange it for the message of that mini-sermon, that it's all about what we do. No, it isn't. We know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So treasure that truth. Hold on to it. Remind yourself of it daily. Every time you start to feel that doubt, that fear creep in, remind yourself, come back to this one verse, that nobody is justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Let it be the start of your prayers. Let it be the thing you thank God for every day, the truth that you cling to when you despair over yourself and when you are conscious of your own sin and guilt. And let it be the thing, the first thought in your mind when you look at anyone else. Let this be the first thought, the lens through which you see everybody else in the world. Remember that God's offer of acceptance is open to them on exactly the same terms that it has been open to you. And if they haven't accepted it yet, however good or however bad their life looks, then pray that they will. And if they have accepted it, then accept them just as they are. Because in Christ, that is how God has accepted you. Let's pray. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Father, thank you for that precious, amazing truth that you accept us by grace on the basis of what the Lord Jesus has done. And that you forgive us for all that we have done, all our falling short. Please, Lord, will you write that truth in our heart day by day? Not simply in our minds, but in how we approach ourselves, how we approach you, and how we approach others. Make us people of joyful grace, grace that we receive from you and that we extend to one another. And we pray, Father, that you would help us as we hold that grace out to others whom we love, that they might come to be justified by faith in you too. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.